Let me welcome everybody to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. This is a weekly podcast, and we bring you important and enduring conversations with people worth hearing and listening to. And in this episode, I want to welcome psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Rick Hansen, who is a senior fellow with UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. His books, which have sold over a million copies in English and have been published in 31 languages, include Neurodharma, Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Resilient, Just One Thing, and most recently, Making Great Relationships, subtitled Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. And welcome, Rick Hansen. Delighted to have you with us. Michael, I always enjoy being with you, and that's really sincerely meant. Thank you for that, and sincere quid pro quo or mutuality here, mutual admiration society. Um, I thought we'd begin, though, by talking about neuroscience because it's so much a part of your work. Buddhism and neuroscience are kind of cornerstones of your work. But when I say talk about neuroscience, neuroscience is a guide to wisdom. A lot of people think maybe that's a leap of faith or you know, how can you um, use neuroscience to find wisdom or find enlightenment, find the path to wisdom for that matter. That's what you're all about, isn't it? Well, we were joking beforehand that you were going to offer a few quibbles, and that's much more than a quibble. That's a nice big boulder rolling down the hill and a great one. Uh, well, first— You can be uh, Sisyphus and roll it right back up, by the way, if you want. <laughs> um, people throughout the ages and currently today are healing themselves. They're growing. They're even moving along the path of awakening broadly, and obviously there are many, many— subpaths and multiple paths of awakening. They're, they're doing that without knowing a single thing about their underlying biology, and they haven't needed to know anything about their underlying biology. The question is, is it, does it add value in some ways to have an understanding of the, under, of the physical underlying causes and conditions of each moment of experience, moment after moment by moment, which is being constructed inside the natural frame of the Big Bang universe, moment by moment by moment, by physical processes. There may also be transcendental influences uh, beyond the Big Bang universe, and personally my view is that there are, uh, but certainly inside the normal frame, the natural frame so-called, in which science functions. Um, you know, most if not all of the causes, moment to moment to moment, of the next moment of consciousness are flowing through our body including in the headquarters of the nervous system. That's factually the case. And so based on that, uh, the, pragmatically, I have found it, and I think a lot of other people have found it really quite useful to know some things about the underlying hardware uh, because you can become more insightful, you can become more skillful in how you regulate it. You can have more humility, frankly, to realize that like, oh, the super special me is just being made continuously in impersonal ways. Well, in your new book, uh, I found a number of binaries, and it made me think again of neuroscience mm -hmm. in a different respect. You talk about the two wolves, you know, that are hungry for good yeah. and hungry for bad, and you talk about green and red lights. All these things seem to be a kind of dualism. Dualistic, uh-huh. Uh and even two tracks of anger in the brain um, that you write about. But I thought to myself, you also point out correctly from all the empirical data we have, that the brain has a negativity uh, bias. And so how do we reprogram? Yeah, isn't that interesting? That? Yeah. 
Well, to your point, for sure, metaphor is often expressed in a in a binary way when really it's much more like a continuum. When you think about the different tendencies that we have inside ourselves, you know, metaphorically just summarized in in the fable that is pretty well known now of the of the two wolves of love and hate inside us all. Uh, so that's true. And you know, I remember this. I, I read um, the introduction to I and Thou by Martin Buber. And I remember the introduction made this funny point. He said, basically, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who think there are two kinds of people and those who don't, you know, which really takes you to a meta level. But you're right, the brain, uh, as a generalization, due to evolution, has a hardwired negativity bias, particularly around um, somatic and emotional learning. We can have a bit of a positivity bias for recollections of events, uh, we tend to edit out pain from our memories. Like I've done a lot of rock climbing and I edit out the memory of tight shoes. But in terms of daily life, um, the brain is designed to do five things routinely. Focus on, uh, look for bad news, scan for it, over-focus on it, over-react to it, over-remember it, and become overly sensitized to it over time. And so that served us well back in the Stone Age and on the Serengeti Plains and Jurassic Park before that. But today it creates a lot of unnecessary stress, upset, and conflict with other people, which wears on our lifespan. So for me, a lot of the central theme, I guess, of my life in a way is claiming the autonomy I can while recognizing that I'm helpless about most things, <laughs> which is a theme in relationships, right? In, in the autonomy we can, we can deliberately um, correct for the negativity bias by dealing with the bad for sure skillfully and mindfully so we're less it's less reinforced in us while turning to the good and then taking in the good for its own sake but also because it most equips us then to deal with the inevitable bad in this life this it seems to me in a pragmatic way is right at the center of a lot of your thinking um seeing good whenever you can and seeing good in yourself and others also taking deep breaths a lot and staying centered unless the center doesn't hold which is often the case um i'm just reminded though when you mentioned martin buber the yeah. i thou relationship is something that you know we should be aspiring to and uh and yet we live in this world of i it uh, yeah. to, to use buber uh yeah. and yet you can take this neural circuitry and turn it toward empathy this totally. is something that really people need to have. I mean, you have neuroplasticity that you can develop and maybe yeah. a little detachment is appropriate there. But yeah. there's a lot that can be done to make you just a more feeling, better, more decent, kinder human being, more compassionate human being with the, yeah. it, with the neuroscience. I know. It, it, it's exciting. And the frame for me is relevant in that I was just reflecting a moment ago that I, I lived in Europe for two years, a year in Finland, a year in Germany. And, and for that reason, maybe in part, and I don't know my own background, I guess I would say, unlike maybe a fair number of Americans, especially Americans who grew up in LA like I did, I have sort of a tragic view, I guess, and that a recognition of the possibility of things really falling apart. And also a recognition of how there are a lot of challenges in life. So it's out of that that, it, that I've really focused on what can we do, claiming the power that we can and helping ourselves grow and learn and, and equip ourselves in various ways as much as possible. So for me, the, my orientation in this territory is not about positive thinking or the bright side. It's more like, wow, 
because we're in trouble. We need to we need to develop ourselves and claim the autonomy we can, you know, with our own biology. And to me, then it becomes extremely hopeful that every day gives us a handful of opportunities to let go a little more, you know, uh, wake up a little more, heal a little more, and grow a little more. And it's um, it's wonderful to think that we we're not screwed. <laughs> I mean, we are in some ways. <laughs> well, despite <laughs> there are things we can do. Despite your tragic view, there are things that we can do, and yeah. that holds true pretty much in your new book for relationships, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for the cue there. That, that was what struck me as a longtime therapist, and also a, when I was a kid, I was super shy, awkward, anxious. I was very young going through school. My parents were loving but not good at empathy at all, speaking of, and I, I was a basket case <laughs> in terms of relationships. I had a lot to learn. So I just have been really interested in what can you learn? And as a longtime family therapist, couples counselor, and individual therapist too, I could see a lot of people, they were their relationships had stagnated or there was a kind of stuckness in many important relationships. They weren't terrible, but they weren't particularly good. Uh, and often a person would say, I don't know what to say next. Or my partner, my boss, my coworker, my adult kid, my teenager is doing this or that. What? What would be helpful next? And so for me, that's what the book's really about. What to say next, what to think next, what to do next for their sake and for yours. Um, you know what's so coming to my mind, I'm sorry to say? Uh, just What'd you me, say? No, I forgive me for interrupting you, but coming to my mind is a line of Beckett's Habit is the great deadener, and that's really what I'm inferring from what you're saying. How do you struggle against habit when you don't have anything to say, when there's a that's vacuum? Right. right, and you don't know what to do. Like your teenager walks past you and gives you a cold shrug, or you, you, you know, your wife, I've been married 41 years now, your wife says something a little critical about how you spent some money on your recent vacation, like an hour ago, and what do you do? <laughs> and right there, I think about turning points, and now we are constructing the future right at the in the present continuously. What, what? How can we use the the power that we do have while being really understanding about how limited that power is? But it's an autonomy power you're talking about. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, what, using what your own. I think agency. about you, like how the choices you make when you interview people. You're constantly choosing a. And, you know, a turn, left or right. Well, sometimes, well, politically too, but sometimes yeah. it's, it's almost random in some ways. I was thinking, <laughs> in fact, of uh, the importance, and you emphasize it, and I've emphasized it in a few of my interviews, of kindness. Uh, it's a hard thing to uh, to internalize and to really get your head around for some people, but you can actually, getting back to neuroscience, you can actually mm. hardwire your nervous system, you learn from reading Rick Hansen, to be more kind. Well, that's what's remarkable. I mean, if people are if people are developing in any way, their brain must be changing, and their body as well, their hormonal system, immune system, the whole you know kid and caboodle. But minimally, if a child learns to walk instead of crawl, their brain has changed. If that child now, forty years later, learns how to be a little more skillful and restrained with that child's partner, their brain has to have changed. That's all the truth. And so what's interesting then is to claim that power skillfully. And one of the most useful things a person can do 
is to step back from emotionally negative experiences while feeling them. That's mindfulness right there. So mindfulness of the experience rather than being hijacked by it. That step right there reduces the reinforcement of that emotionally negative experience in your brain. People can do that. Also, if you wanna help yourself, if you're experiencing something useful, like you're calming, or you feel strong, or you feel capable, or you have kindness or empathy, you're developing kindness and empathy, say, slow down for that experience for a breath or two or longer. Keep the neurons firing together so they will eventually wire together as well. Those two steps, which are under volitional control, right? Mindfulness around that which is troubling and painful and um, cultivation uh, in relationship to what's um, helpful and enjoyable. Those are two powerful ways to gradually, literally sculpt your brain slowly but surely toward the good for yourself and for others. I've said on a few occasions, Rick Hansen is as much a philosopher as he is a psychologist. And uh, well, I'm looking at a question here from James in San Diego. You don't get much more philosophical than this. Um, <laughs> oh, what do no. you see? <laughs> yeah, brace yourself for this question. What do you see as the ultimate goal of human existence and how can we best achieve this goal in our own lives? Well, I first of all, I'm very touched that someone put that on the table. And if you'd be willing, Michael, I would love to hear your crack headed as well. You know, I can just say for myself that, number one, I avoided philosophy classes at UCLA because I wanted to preserve my GPA. So <laughs> I'm late to this territory. My personal crack, I'm not sure there is meaning or purpose baked into the natural frame of the Big Bang universe, which is a clockwork deterministic unfolding. I'm not sure that even the question is answerable. On the other hand, for individuals, whether it's the quail in my backyard that we were joking are very happily gobbling up all the food I give them and getting fat in the process, or you or me, we have values, we have goals. All, all, every cell has goals at the cellular level, right? And then scale up at the organism level. And then the question becomes, what are the goals that really touch your heart? What do you care about? What's your purpose here You know that you care about? And for me, those purposes have tend to fall into three groups, quality of life purposes, service purposes, and learning or awakening purposes. And personally, I, um, you know, I'm interested in the, the full development of human potential, in my own case, kind of as far as I can go, like, why not? <laughs> Well, you're not being cocky about it. Why not go for it? If you can keep climbing, well, the view gets better and better. <laughs> um, yeah, I was talking about uh, climbing an ice mountain in Alaska and wondered if you could see Russia from there, uh, like Sarah Palin postulated. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's it's funny how things stay in your mind that you encounter most recently, and they don't necessarily implant themselves, but. I happened to see an interview that Anthony Hopkins did recently, and he was asked about, you know, what's the purpose of life? Distill some wisdom that you can yeah. from having lived such an extraordinary life. And he was talking about looking at a picture of himself as a as a young boy and thinking, you've done all right for yourself, kid, you know. But there was that sort of little nice affirmative narcissism. But he also said something that has stuck to me. He said, keep on going. <laughs> 
you know? Yeah. And, and don't feel defeated. Uh, and those are maybe two of the primary mm-hmm. notions that one can at least apply. I wonder, though, because you come in, in this most recent book to love. You write a lot about love. You said love is like the air we breathe. And, you know, we can even love microbes. It, it sounds really expansive and Buddhistic, especially <laughs> when you have can- compassion for all your fellow creatures and all of that. But uh, I, I think, you know, I, I almost deliberately want to avoid using the name Freud here, but I won't. You know, he said maybe the basic condition, human condition, is ambivalence. It's, again, the green light and red light. It's hatred mm. and love combined. Do we have to give ascendancy to love, particularly mm. when so many of our creatures don't necessarily warrant or deserve love? I mean, I know over right. at the Berkeley Center, you give a lot of attention to goodness and love, and yeah. these are wonderful concepts. But, you know, we've got a lot of people who um, we recoil from with good reason, and there's yeah. a lot of evil. Sorry to be so philosophical, but... no. Deep end of the pool, it's fantastic. Well, for myself, you know, um, in in a book, I think it's okay to have a range uh, of very practical in the trenches, you know, what do you do when they start yelling at you and break the the China, all the way to kind of more aspirational, up, you know, onward leading things like a way of ultimately relating to life as, as being lived by love in some sense. And so for me, part of it has to do with a frame of pragmatic skillfulness. If we observe people who seem admirable, they stand up to the test of time, they're, they seem farther along the path than, than one is. I think of Thich Nhat Hanh, bless his memory, for example, and others who are still alive right now. We can learn from them and in a sense almost reverse engineer in ourselves the qualities that they seem deeply rested in. And as... Um, Throughout the world's traditions, people who are very, very developed in their practice, including in the First Nations, the indigenous people around the world, their own traditions of wisdom, they tend to converge on a kind of summit, even though they approach it from many, many different routes up to the mountain, up the mountain of awakening. And one of the things you just see again and again is this quality of unconditional lovingness. Uh, across all traditions. So why not? All right, that's aspirational, right? On the other hand... Every um, major religion teaches us to love our fellow human Yeah, and humanist, secular humanism as well, uh, if only pragmatically. Then the question becomes, what do we do with the Putins of the world? You know? What do we do with the, the, the bully in your eighth grade schoolyard? What do we or do? What do we do with the fact that love keeps failing in so many ways, the desire to love humanity or to elevate humanity to feel total compassion for people who often don't deserve compassion. Has love failed or has a person been unable to find love and or are we still trying to figure out what to do with you know, systemic injustice, which we are and matters. So for me, um, I would say first and foremost, my suggestion to a person is do what's authentic for you, you know, and, and then see what's still within range. For you, maybe at the upper bound of what might be in range for you. Um, and for myself, I can say that I can rest in compassion for people. And I practice on people that are difficult for me, like um, Donald Trump or uh, you know even Vladimir Putin. We can rest in compassion while simultaneously pursuing justice and simultaneously honoring our own outrage and fieriness and fed upness. The older I get, the more peaceful I get and the matter I get. 
honestly. Yeah, I understand that. I empathize deeply with that. When when you talk about people like Putin or Trump, for that matter, a lot of people love Trump. Uh, A lot of people love Putin. Um, But the reality is, well, you know, I often think when you tell someone to be authentic, to be themselves, they can be authentic in malice and in malignity. Right. Yeah, obviously. So it's not. I'm not telling them to be authentic, but for me, it's it's important to not. Um, how can I put it? We 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 practice with what's in range, and for many people, for them to cultivate, let's say, compassion for uh, Putin, it's just out of range. But they can find compassion for a friend who's annoying, or they can find compassion for uh, you know, someone who's taken a long time in front of them in line to talk with a checker to try to figure out how much something costs and they, you know, blah, blah. So you do what's within range for you if you want to, absolutely. Um, and alongside that compassion could well be other authentic feelings you're having at the time, like you're really mad at that person, or you feel superior to them or you envy them, all right, you include that as well. But maybe to kind of summarize it, something that's been helpful for me to appreciate is that in my own self-interest, I don't want to let um, hatred or ill will poison my own heart because that's bad for me. And also I feel less stressed uh, when I'm rested more in the heart. What, but what enables that, and the book is, my book is probably is easily half about this, how to be assertive in a nutshell while staying rested in a fundamental benevolence, if you will, how to be assertive. And it's really important. You have to claim to yourself, I'll say that prescriptively, we have to claim for ourselves the power to be assertive effectively. Good, you know, fences make for good neighbors because that's what protects our capacity to continue to rest in warm-heartedness. But you, you think know, of assertiveness two, without necessarily being too aggressive or too obnoxious or too yeah. overbearing, and that's sometimes a pretty delicate balance. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's some more I, questions for you. Actually, uh, yeah. since we're talking, yeah, this is right apropos of what we're talking about. This is from Chris in Tempe, Arizona, and he says, you've used the expressions change your brain and change your mind. What do you have to say about change of heart? Uh, yeah, right, no, that's good. Uh, so the way I try to define things and, and speak about it is that the mind is includes all of our experiences, including many, many heartfelt experiences, A. B, um, the physical heart and the 40, I think, million neurons that are involved with it do affect our um, overall functioning in our psyche. I'm being a little technical here, sorry. On the other hand, your brain has about 85 billion neurons. So people tend to want to almost privilege the heart because it sounds warm and fuzzy and nice, and the brain sounds gooey and tofu-like and Spock-like, so ugh, and heady. I, I get that. But the whole body works together. And I think also there may well be subtle energy fields around the heart that are really significant that we don't, that are inside the natural frame, but we don't yet have the science that can detect. But I think the science has shown to some extent your brain can change, but your heart doesn't necessarily change. And they operate in similar fashion often, but not necessarily always by any stretch. If you mean the literal heart, I mean the physical cardiovascular structure 
does change. Like, I'm careful about not getting too much plaque in my arteries because my dad is very sensitive that way, no longer alive. Um, but, you know, the neurons in your heart, they're plastic. They're making new connections. It's dynamic. Uh, but you're right. Most of the learning that happens occurs in the hardware that's between our ears. But that's probably an overly techy way of getting at, um, I don't know. I use my brain to open my heart. How's that? No, I like that. In fact, that's good. Uh, let's, that's one to store away. Um, <laughs> There's a question from Robert in Los Angeles. He says, could you guess, please discuss how the pandemic has fundamentally changed society? Are these changes permanent? I love your take on it. I think, so negativity bias, let's say. So for example, supposedly there are seven major emotions. The bulk of them are negative emotions, so-called affect like contempt, anger, fear, sadness, shame. And then there's kind of like love and happiness, two out of seven, right? For example, right there. Second, in evolution, the neurological basis uh, for emotion uh, in the brainstem was first established for contempt, which is to, or disgust, you wanna spit it out, or uh, anxiety and then rage. But contempt is very visceral. So we are very vulnerable to fears of contamination, disgust, you know, like something's invaded us. And then you have an invisible contaminant that we don't have control over that could kill us. A million Americans and more actually, if you consider the knock-on health effects in our system, died from COVID. Wow, a million people, you know. So I think it's it's shifted us. Um, my fear is that it's it's made us in some ways more indifferent in America, in the aggregate to each other, and less connected because it's driven us away from the forms of direct contact and touch that are our biological endowment, you know, as hunter-gatherers. So I kind of have some concerns about that. I think it's also been a profound lesson for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear about the importance of science and taking care of the underlying cellular structure of civil society. And we can see the countries that performed the best in COVID, usually led by women, uh -huh. not coincidentally. Yeah, what do you think, Michael? I think I'm in agreement with a lot of what you say. And again, you're sounding like a philosopher and I uh, commend you for-, <laughs> philosopher. for Well, I, I, that's not necessarily a, a handicap, it's not quite the contrary. It's, uh, it's a compliment. Um, you know, the value of philosophy at the core to wisdom has always been axiomatic in my mind. And um, mm. I find myself actually wondering, since we're talking about the effect of the pandemic, it killed a lot of people. and. Where does death fit into this whole picture? I mean, we're all mortal. We all face it. I always think about Wallace Stevens' line from Sunday morning, death is the mother of beauty. Would we know even or understand what beauty is if it weren't for the fact that we're mortal and die? If, if things were imperishable and eternal, we couldn't know what beauty is. We couldn't know what a lot of things are. Um, and yet the fact remains that um, we're always sort of struggling against our own mortality, moment to moment sometimes, right? Well, I thought of the, you know, double, maybe with you, triple, quadruple entendre of your title of your podcast, Gray Matters, you know, graying and um, aging and, right? All those double entendres are intentional. Uh, less political, though, than the idea of the grayness as opposed to the black and whiteness. Again. Ah, the ambiguities. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah. I tend to search for meaning sometimes That's in those ambiguities. That's beautiful, I didn't recognize yeah. that, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, some people are overwhelmed by death. They're, they're, they're grieving or their sense of being disempowered because of their own mortality, the frailness of it, the fragility of it. Uh, how, yeah. how does that fit I, into your whole gestalt and your whole picture of things? Well, I've had friends recently die, you know, I... Um, I'm getting old enough. I clocked my 70th lap around the sun back in October. Uh, and so, you, you know, I'm, as you know, mortality is a central topic in the wisdom traditions and obviously as well in the humanities and in everyday life. Uh, at a deep level, uh, whack me upside the head if I get too little... Buddha geeky here or something, but you know, a central topic for Buddhism, maybe the central topic is impermanence. And there are engravings, you may know this, from ancient India that said essentially one who understands impermanence truly understands the Dharma. I mean, that's the central observation. Uh, precarity, right? Fragility, uh, dependent arising. And then the question becomes how do we live at the front edge of now continuously while it's always disappearing without panicking, right? And then just in terms of our current moment-to-moment -moment subjectivity, and that's a real interesting exploration. And for me, one of the things that, of course, is consistent with my overall you know, view of things is to develop the, the resources that allow you to tolerate precarity and evanescence um, while, and, and one of the major resources that allows you to do that is the ongoing appreciation for what is continually arising amidst all the passings away. Actually, since you're talking about Buddhism, James from San Diego says, how are concepts of karma and rebirth in Theravada Buddhism useful in your everyday practice? Well, getting personal there. <laughs> It's good. Well, I, in your book, there's friends. a lot that's personal, I know. by the way. There, I, I noticed that. You know, you're telling a good deal of personal anecdotes in this new book, Making Great oh, Relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've had two, I've had one and a half experiences that had a very strong and compelling sense of a past life. I don't know what to make of them. I know that uh, the Buddha, who's to me, one of the wisest people around just spoke most matter-of-factly about cosmological matters and multiple births, you know. I personally don't know, and I respect people in the secular Buddhism frame, let's say, who just dispense entirely with that notion of rebirth. Um, I don't believe that we need the notion of rebirth to be motivated to practice in this birth, as some would argue. Uh, that said, You know, if a person does have a pragmatically useful sense of tendencies, sort of flotsam and jetsam in the long river of time that have that have kind of come together, moved that are carried over from a previous bodily existence and are present in this one, and you know, if that's meaningful for you, oh, okay, good. I relate to that pragmatically while knowing that it could be a no more than a useful fiction, um, that I've been handed a variety of um, qualities uh, and forms of uh, luck, let alone privilege, you know, advantage in, in American society as a white man born in 1952. Um, I don't want to suck. 
I want to make use of what's been generously given to me and, you know, represent for the team and pass forward to maybe future me's in this life, tomorrow and a year from today, let alone who knows what might come after my last breath, Pat, you know, to kind of do the best I can uh, with it, handing it off forward. Well, we can get woo-woo with this easily, all yeah. too easily. But, you know, I just recently had lunch with a friend who has been a seeker most of his life and um, uh, a guy who did very well in business and, you know, was a tough guy in business, but nevertheless uh, has always been looking for answers and um, took an astrophysics course and started talking about this astrophysics course and the impact effect it had on him. He said something that, that stayed with me that he said, there's so much dark matter out there. We know that most yeah. of uh, of what's and out it's there not is gray. made well, of up. Maybe it's gray. It's the uh, ultimate well, it gray. Could be gray too. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it you know it's inexplicable. It's beyond our ken. It's beyond uh, what we can reason yeah. with or understand. So there's all kinds of possibilities that just yeah. are infinite because it's infinite out there, and we can't get our head around the infinite. Which brings me to Jeff's question. Jeff is with us from Summit, Illinois, and he says, "And thanks for all these really good questions. Uh, is our imagination creating our reality?" What do you mean reality? Sorry, I said this like Mork and Mindy, like reality, what a concept, right? But what do you mean? Do you mean objective? Like is our imagination creating El Capitan? I'm not sure what Jeff means. I can't. Yeah, but it's I a good assume, question. But it's definitely creating our subjective reality. Well, what we think is real. I mean, you write in your book about what's real, for example. Yeah. Maybe we'll use that as an index yeah. here. I, my position philosophically, I wonder what yours is. I don't think my individual consciousness is manifesting El Capitan or some asteroid, or the stars in one of the other two trillion galaxies in our universe. I don't think my personal imagination or consciousness is necessary for the existence of those things. That's a fundamental stance that in which I respect the fact that I could be wrong about it, but that's my position about it. Like probably most people, you know, rocks are hard. I don't want to trip over them. That said, in an ultimate way, I think it's arguably true that some mysterious kind of awareness must be woven into the fabric of the Big Bang universe for it to continue manifesting, for quantum possibility at the front edge of now to congeal into actuality everywhere always. Well, I've always said, where did the Big Bang come from? Yeah, that too. I mean, that that's too. exactly right. So I so that's that's just my actual view about it. Um, but to go in another way that I'd like to ask you about. To me, you're like a curator of imagination in a lot of ways. And I think imagination has just been squeezed out of so many people's mind streams by society and the bombardment of media, you know, and the almost like the sacredness of the inner quiet from which, you know, imagination arises. Like, how does imagination shape our reality? That, that aspect of our psyche, you know, nonverbal imagery or just imaginary processing, I, I think it is really important. And unfortunately for many people, it's it's very, somewhat left out in the creating of who they're becoming. What do Remember you um, Chris Kringle uh, saying to the young girl on his lap in that famous movie, there's a wonderful nation, it's called the imagination, and uh, more people have to visit it. There aren't enough people who are actually partaking of or participating in uh, yeah. A little plug for the recent podcast we did with Jennifer Egan, a Pulitzer Prize-winning mm -hmm. novelist, who said, "You know, we need we need fiction 
because yeah. it gives lights to our imagination. It yeah. arrests our imagination, engages it, and so forth, and it becomes I, I have vital. friends who are educated, bright. I ask them, do you read any fiction? Like, any fiction? Like, no. Do you, do you watch movies? Do you engage fiction in any way, stories? Like, no. It's Lots it's of people like, something... like that, Rick. Lots of people who just are anchored in reality, and I don't necessarily want to make any judgments, but uh, they might want to let their imaginations loose now and then and see what happens. Yeah. See what Yeah, not a not a critique, more like, oh, what's that what's that like? <laughs> and also I, I don't know, a missed opportunity. What are you missing? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Well, I don't want to miss any of these uh questions that are coming in. Uh Simon from London in the UK. Thank Hello, you. Hello, Simon. Simon says, What impact does language have on the world uh on how the world occurs for each of us? There's a that, you know, that's very a deep heavy, question. profound question. You, yeah. Have you heard the term the Whorf hypothesis? I, I've heard it. Yeah. You yeah, it's it, this yeah. notion that language shapes our view. If you don't have a word for snow, let's say, can you imagine snow? And and well, you studied psycholinguistics, also, haven't you? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then that goes, I think, to the my view overprivileging of language by people historically who are very good at it. <laughs> you know, kind of. <laughs> rationalist sort of way. And so much of our inner world is not embedded in language, really. And so much of the hardware of the brain, you know, is not involved with producing or or comprehending language either. And so I think it's important to be aware of inner speech and use language. I, I use language for a living, obviously, while also trying to make room for many other modes of being and experiencing and imagining that are not, um, I don't know, that are not trapped in language. What do you think of that? I think language has limitations and language is imperfect and it's also subjective and there are lots of things that we can say about yeah. really where language doesn't, uh, shouldn't be taken absolute by any stretch. I've, I, to, to Simon's question specifically, if I can interrupt you there briefly, yeah. I've asked multiple people who can think in more than one language. Okay, they're they're multilingual, and I'll ask them, "What is it like to shift language that you're thinking in, or maybe even dreaming in? Do your dreams change? Does your perspective shift from one language to another?" To Simon's question, and most people have just said, "Not really." Although th then they'll say, "Well, if I'm doing something emotional, like if I'm in therapy, I want to use my native tongue." Understandably. Yeah. yeah, it's There's intimate. An, actually, you reminded me of an old joke, uh, which I love, which a uh, person who speaks two languages is bilingual, one who speaks three is trilingual, one who speaks only one is American. <laughs> Unfortunately, as like many jokes, it has a lot of resonance. Uh, you know, I, I want to get to something that I think is very useful. There are a lot of useful things in your writings and in this new book, Making Great Relationships. But I was struck by, uh, I've often thought of the fact that most people, and this is just true of Americans too, when we're talking about language, are afraid of public speaking and they have uh, great apprehension and sometimes, I mean, it's, it's a fear that almost is greater than all these other phobias, spiders or, you know, um, yeah. heights and so forth, uh, because more people seem to experience fear of speaking publicly. And there's something, I'm actually going to read something from your book if you'll indulge me. Because I think it could be very valuable to people who have this concern about public speaking or this phobia or fear. Um, 
this is from Rick's newest book. He says, some years ago I was invited to give a keynote address at a conference with the largest audience I've ever, I'd ever faced. It was a big step for me, big step up. Legendary psychologists were giving the other talks, and I feared I wouldn't measure up. I was nervous, real nervous. I sat in the back waiting my turn, worrying about how people would view me. Would they think I was just a big imposter? I thought about different ways to look impressive and get their approval. My mind fixated on me, me, me. I was miserable. Searching for a distraction, I saw a newsletter sitting on a nearby chair. I picked it up and found an interview with the Dalai Lama. This had to be taken out of his book, by the way, for the Chinese translation because of the anger that the Chinese feel toward Tibet. I just give that little footnote. He spoke about the happiness and wishing others well and being of service to them. He was inspiring, and I felt a wave of calm as I stopped obsessing about me and just rested in the feeling of wanting to be helpful. So I gave my talk and stayed focused on what could be useful to the people in the audience rather than how I was coming across. I felt much more relaxed and at peace, and to my surprise, got a standing ovation. Later, I laughed to myself at the ironies. To get approval, stop seeking it. Take care of yourself. Take care of others. Now, that's real wisdom, I think, you know, and that's uh, a good lesson <laughs> for those people. <laughs> who, uh, but an important lesson for so many people because they do think probably of how am I coming across and am I seen as an imposter. And by the way, I just read an article that tries to put the total kibosh to that whole idea of imposter syndrome and takes it apart and kind of deconstructs it. I'll just yeah, put I that thought out it was there. kind of overstated. But it is really true, like um, – and I've shared this suggestion with many people, if they have an issue with public speaking, at the very start or even before you go up, look at the faces of multiple people and not in a creepy staring way, but just look at the faces and take a few seconds with people to get a sense of them and recognize their longings, their suffering. You just form quick impression. You're not mind reading, you're not invasive. And then what will naturally happen is you will be moved to be helpful to them. What will be helpful to them? And it will calm you. And then and you'll do a much better job as a result as well. And take a deep breath. Yeah, um, that's true. Here's Francis who says, how, can, uh, uh, how we can relate to our own thoughts and feelings in a powerful way? I think that's... She stated yeah, the question, that's a how can question we? Yeah, yeah. yeah, we tend to relate to ourselves as others have related to us, especially in our childhoods, and that gets internalized. And the question might be for someone, well, if, when you're with another person, do you want to rest in a basic stance of, of, of goodwill for them? So you're, you're not just neutral, but you're actually a little tilted toward them. I feel that right here, let's say, with you. In, in the frame of what we're doing here. Um, and also when you come across in another person, something that's, um, uh, there's some form of suffering in them. They're, they're unhappy about something, something's hard for them, they're tired, they're weary, just normal stuff, they're frustrated about something. What's your orientation to that? How do you orient to it? You know, presuming that along the way, you're you know taking care of your own needs in reasonable ways. Similarly, we can relate to ourselves that way. When something arises in our mind, do we start by yelling at it? You know, do we start by being ashamed that that was that arose inside us, or do we start by being curious? Maybe slowing it down, unpacking what's arising in our own minds. Um, do we do we adopt a stance in some ways of being uh, um, resourceful 
in, not just inert or overwhelmed or remote, frozen in relationship to what arises in our own minds, that we want to sort out what, what might help nudge it in a better direction or what can I learn from this. These are ways we can relate to ourselves. And along the way, can there be a capacity to see what is good alongside what might be troubling or problematic, need some regulation maybe? Uh, that particular wolf could maybe use a little regulation. Uh, can we do that for ourselves? That changes everything. Mm. To be a friend, an ally, uh, and like a good friend who can see where you're kind of full of beans and can help you find a better way. Uh, that shift is the first chapter in the book, Be Loyal to Yourself. It's foundational. And to my surprise, when I started being a therapist, I found a lot of people, the crux issue is that they weren't lo loyal to themselves. And this is, a valuable, this is a valuable lesson. I mean, psychologically as well as just personally yeah. on every level. You can be so flagellating and so unkind to yourself when you're kind to other people. I mean, the, the lesson in that for me has always been, you know, be more accepting and kinder to yourself. You're doing yourself a good service because I, I can state categorically, I was always sometimes nicer to people than I was to myself. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are like that. Huh? Yeah. What's interesting is that you can be more successful uh, being a friend to yourself and a guide to yourself than you can be as an enemy to yourself and a harsh critic of yourself. People sometimes fear that if I'm not really hard on myself, I'm going to lose my edge. But actually, that works in the short term, but you'll tend to wear out. What lurks in the long term is that um, fundamental stance of encouragement and guidance rather than discouragement and criticism. That's also another lesson, I think, philosophically that I derive from your work and uh, it correlates to other things that I've read. The, the notion that uh, when you feel shame or when you feel abasement or humiliation or any of those kinds of things, you can actually learn from those things as opposed to feeling you know, self-punishment or self abnegation or anything along those lines, you can process it in a way that moves you forward. I hope so. It's interesting. Um, I, you know, I have an online meditation program on Wednesday nights, free. People can check it out if they like. And the talk I did just week before last was titled Mistakes, Regret, and Remorse. This is something I've been uh, mulling. You know, as my own hair gets gray, that sense of gray, and look, I look back, I do see mistakes, and how do we handle them? How do we learn from them? You know, so you see, how do you acknowledge in my book? It's it's with other a lot of it is about repair. How do we repair with someone when we've made a mistake, or maybe they're accusing us of a mistake? I'm using that term extremely loosely and broadly. Uh, how do you, how do you, one of my chapters is titled Admit Fault and Move On. <laughs> you know, how do you cop to your stuff? To use the California jargon, maybe, maybe as an aging hippie, how do you cop to your stuff um, while also sticking up for yourself about what you want from them? I mean, that's very much an art because if you don't repair relationships, they tend to fray um, over time. Yeah, some uh, light perhaps and wisdom about the best ways to repair relationships? Oh, uh, to be practical, um, not so philosophical. Uh, I find, I'll give you a few tips really fast. One is to sort out what, what there is in, for me, three piles loosely, what I call a moral fault, skillful correction, and gracious gift. What I mean by that is people will 
have things they want from us. They'll have complaints, they'll have criticisms, they'll be angry about something, they'll be hurt about something. Stuff comes at us. And then it, it's our opportunity to sort it into what deserves actual guilt or remorse. Often it doesn't. Is that what, just prioritizing then? It's sorting. Yeah. Like, let's say you're driving quickly. You're driving normally. Like, this is from my life. I'm driving normally. I grew up in L.A. I'm in the fast lane. My wife is squeezing the door handle and shoving her foot on the floor to squeeze a brake that she doesn't have because she's anxious. All right. Then what? Well, was I being reckless? That would deserve a little remorse or guilt. Actually, no. So it's not a matter of moral fault. Was I being unskillful? Actually, no, again, she has poor depth perception. She's anxious. She's not used to driving very much. I'm fine. I'm not speeding. I'm maintaining a steady, long distance between myself and the car in front on the fast lane. It's not really about being more skillful. But third, a gracious gift. Why not give it to her? Why not slow down five miles an hour, get there three minutes later? Or why not move over to the next lane? When she's communicating. It's saturated with moral shaming. She's mad at me, right? And if we react to that, then we're at the effect of what they say. But if we slow it down and decide for ourselves, hey, what do I think here? And then very often we'll realize, you know, going forward, I could be more skillful in some way. But you're not a type A personality. I'm thinking about a type A personality in your seat going through what you went through. I mean, Type A I had to learn to do that, but yeah. that's, that's one tip. That's a really good that's a, tip. It's Another a good tip, but I'm thinking about down. people who are that's much a, more reactive than you are, perhaps. Oh, you had to slow it down. And I didn't for a long time. I would just get mad. I'd fire back. And then, how's that going? How's that working for you? Someone defined karma as hitting golf balls, golf balls inside a tile shower, right? That's from Stephen Gaskin, the Monday night class back in San Francisco back in the day. You know, and, and I, it didn't go well when I would do that, but... That, I find that's a really useful thing. And then second is to take responsibility as fast as you can for what you see as legitimately your part and declare it. You know, whatever it is. Again, the first part of my book's about building up the inner capacities to slow it down, be centered, and get on your own side, see you're good. And so you can do these things. But it's to cop to it because admit fault and move on. And, and then... Uh, the rest of it know that, you know, it's you can have compassion for the upset of another person without taking responsibility for it because it's outside the frame of what you judge autonomously to be your reasonable frame of responsibility. I should ask you, you know, since you mentioned And that. I don't mean, yeah, I don't mean that in some sociopathic sense, but it, yeah. Anyway. No, I was just going to ask you about this uh, global compassion coalition since you mentioned compassion. Oh. Thank you. Kind of new yeah. in your life. What, what is it all about? Uh, thanks for queuing that up. Uh, so uh, for a long time, like you, I've wondered, like many people, wow, what's it going to take to actually create the world, maybe by the end of the century, over 75 years from now? That's the world we long for, a world in which 10,000 children a day don't die of hunger, a world in which everybody lives in some kind of functioning civil society rather than maybe barely 20% of humanity and only 6% in a high-functioning democracy. What's it actually going to take? What's it going to take to cap the climate catastrophe that we're, we're in the middle of and it's only getting worse? What's it going to actually take? Right? That's the open question. Then you have a lot of answers swirling around. For me, um, 
I have thought about the ways in which, scientifically, uh, our hunter-gatherer ancestors who lived in groups of 40 or 50, for 97% of the 300,000 years, people like you and me have walked the earth, right? Lived in hunter-gatherer bands whose politics, whose social life was organized around what's called caring and sharing. People should check out the work of Paul Gilbert, a professor in, in England and, and others. Compassion and justice. Now, people argued it wasn't perfect, perfect, but hierarchies were limited, they were flattened, there weren't great concentrations of wealth and power, and people lived in that way, in Stone Age conditions to be sure, but that's the foundation of social life. But then came agriculture with large surpluses of things and, cons and populations, and it's been Game of Thrones for most people ever since. And so the question becomes, how do we take a page out of our ancestors' playbook? How do we scale to 8 billion people the same kind of foundation of compassion and justice at the basis of all human societies as we you know, move further into the 21st century? So I, I, with others, I have founded the Global Compassion Coalition to form a, a new kind of global commons in which millions of people and organizations that care about the common good can come together to recognize each other and experience community with each other, to collaborate and celebrate with each other, and also to coalesce over time resources at a scale that's big enough to, to start to really drive systemic change. So that's the audacious and complicated vision there, globalcompassioncoalition.org. People should just go online and check it out. It's free to join. We welcome donations. We could use donations for sure, but uh, an amazing collection of people has already become part of it. Uh, and uh, and I, th I hope, I think you will outlive me, um, and I, I hope it'll be something that could actually help humanity. Well, it could be a great legacy. As you say, is audacious to be sure. Um, yeah. Ever been called a Pollyanna? People at yeah a little and I I that's why maybe I I wanted to establish my tragico comic or something cred you know the the view of life is challenging and we have a brain that's cobbled together for condition you know life and some you know in in tough conditions not I, well Pollyanna actually have you read Pollyanna somebody prodded me to read it and Pollyanna I never was read it I just know the kid. movie yeah. Pollyanna in the book was an amazing kid. So yeah, call me Pollyanna. I'll take it. <laughs> well, I'll call you uh, something else here. From uh, This is actually to your credit, uh, to put it mildly. James simply writes from San Diego, I appreciate your Making Great Relationships audiobook, and you're taking your time to narrate your own audiobooks. That's just a kind of nice feather oh, in your cap. Oh, thank you for that. And here's um, Reed who says, from Santa Rosa. Sometimes when I'm out hiking, I tell myself, thank you for taking care of the vehicle and getting close to nature and fresh air. Who is speaking to whom? <laughs> What's the, you know Walt Whitman better than I. What's the line? I am multitudes. Do I contradict myself? Well, then I contradict myself. I'm large and I contain multitudes. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's okay. You can, you can, have an alter ego, or you can have all kinds of egos, <laughs> I guess. Why not? Well, yeah, one of the powerful things I've done, you know, in my own journey coming up through the human potential movement in the 70s and, and onward, is to really appreciate 
that um, you know the psyche is a village, a jungle, a zoo, a committee, right? So many voices, so many parts, and and one part of my journey, frankly, was because I was so terrified of my own innards, I withdrew from them into like a kind of a castle of the sort of the center of the ego, if you will. But I was became dispossessed of the vast terrain of my own interior, and I don't think I'm alone in that regard. And and I think part of uh, the journey is to feel resourced enough to gradually lower the drawbridge you know, and step out and start to move out into the provinces, the, the whole space of your, of your psyche, and to appreciate in, in a rebalancing kind of way the underlying ecosystem of consciousness, rebalancing it so that it's, it's more inclusive of, the, of all those parts. Where does aggression fit into your vision of things, especially since, you know, aggression... Yeah. You're talking about well, Putin before. I think you know aggression is responsible, yeah. maybe for what's going on right now with Ukraine and and Russia. And aggression can be very um, destructive, yeah. to put it mildly. But at the same time, it can move you forward, right? I've thought a lot about aggression, and um, if we uh, lie about our own aggressiveness, or disown it, or suppress it, that eventually creates problems. And I think about two kinds of aggressiveness. It's kind of a funny thing. Here's a bit of neuro geekery. If you put an electrode at a certain spot in the brainstem of a cat, you'll trigger a rage reaction. On the other hand, if you move that electron a little bit further away and put it in a different spot, and I don't know the technical detail of this one, it will trigger a um, predatory hunting reaction. Track the distinction. You're, I don't, you play poker, okay. Don't you have those moments where you've got the nuts and you're just thinking, I'm gonna do this thing and take the pot? And it feels great. It's kind of predatory. It's like rushing the net in tennis. It's not that you hate the other people. It's that you love winning, right? And there's a distinction between the two kinds of aggressiveness there, right? And I think that's a very useful one, to be careful. There's, you know, fieriness, standing up against injustice, intensity of anger sometimes that's necessary uh, to a greater good. Sure, hate, ill will, callousness and cruelty starting to slip into the mix, that's a big problem. And um, callousness and cruelty are in our human endowments, for sure. And there's an increasing amount of evolutionary psychology that, that speaks to those capacities and the social cues, especially for males. Uh, that that tend to trigger callousness and cruelty. We're especially vulnerable to that with regard to the other, especially if we feel attacked or contaminated by the other, the dirty other. Right? We got to be careful about that. But on the whole, I think um, you know, there's a place for aggressiveness. As uh, an extremely meek, shy, scared, deferential person, for me to claim my own aggressiveness, partly through rock climbing, partly through sports and somewhat through the human potential movement where I actually learned to be angry. Uh, that's been really important for me, but to be careful with it. I wonder what your thoughts are just momentarily about, well, all the polarization we now have. I was reading um, art critic for New York Magazine saying that anybody who voted for Trump or who supports Republicans 
in your family, in your circle of friends and everything, you should just cut them out, have nothing to do with them. I could see people who feel the same way about anybody who supports Joe Biden or the Democrats. Sure. And that's, to some extent, unfortunately, where we are now. I mean, maybe not yeah. to a civil war like Marjorie Taylor Greene seems to think, red states against blue states or anything like that. But what about that idea that people, from their own aggression or from just their own politics or their own beliefs, I just want to cut out a whole segment of people. No compassion for them. I don't want to have it. They don't exist to me anymore. And for me, there are two levels to that. One is um, uh, the basically the moral implications of our actions and the systems we participate in and also what we consciously, deliberately support has moral implications and uh, who we vote for or do we bother to vote. You know, I, so I think there's that aspect to it. Then there's the more everyday aspect. And I I've have, the way I've dealt with this myself is that I have relatives, for example, who are wonderful, good Christian, Midwestern relatives who are lifelong Republicans. And uh, they're wonderful until you get to this particular topic. And then I actually have a another chapter in the book, sorry, 50 chapters, uh, called Resize the Relationship. Sometimes we just resize it and we carve parts out. So I don't talk about politics with them. They will, you know, on the other hand, I see that they're loving parents. There's a, they're a great cousin. Uh, they're doing what they do for their own motives. I, I, have, a, uh, I have a relative who uh, I was talking about compassion with recently. And he said, you know, Rick, that's right. I practice compassion in my daily life. He's, he's a, a wealthy business person. He said, I, I actually bought a coal-fired power plant and opened it up again and rehired the 750 people who'd lost their jobs there. That was his form of expressed compassion. And he really helped those people and their families in that, little, in that town while driving the excrement of carbon dioxide up into the sky every day. It's complicated. Well, we need another podcast. Uh, I guess I'm going to do your podcast, maybe. We'll take some of this <laughs> you up. You do. Rick, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank oh, you so thank much. Thank you, Michael. And greetings us. to everybody listening. This was, and to you, thank you very much, Michael, and to Shannon as well, and the tech people. It's great. And thank you. In fact, let me uh, say kind thanks to all who listen to this live and send in questions and comments. Thanks also to all who will hear this podcast. and. The present non-existent future, I invite you to join our growing community of podcast listeners to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Simply go to graymatter.show. And thanks especially to our Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Kevin, and Malachi. And special thanks to our guest, Rick Hansen. For all of us, I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.